Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast, where Lisa Sex and I are going to have a conversation on the subject of accountability as part of the ESG and governance series. Lisa is the director of the Columbia Center on Sustainable Investment and an applied research center at Columbia University dedicated to the contribution of investment to sustainable development. Lisa, very nice to speak with you after so long. Sheila, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. I, I hope you know how much I have admired you and your work as an inspiration for all that we've done for the past 15 years. So it's such a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thank you. So, you know, I, I wanted you to help us uh, with this whole thing of improving accountability. In your opinion, how has the notion of governance in the extractions evolved over years to start with? So I have been involved in the extractive sector for really from a from an academic perspective, studying it and trying to improve good governance for about 20 years. And I would say that one of the most notable and important trends that I've observed, um, particularly, I think, in the last five years, even even more recently than that, is the recognition of how deeply embedded the extractive industries are in our global sustainable development challenges and transformations. I think notions of governance in the extractive sector 10, 15 years ago may have traditionally been more localized, specific to the sector, specific to the geography, focused on the local impacts and the local contributions and benefits, highly focused on the operations of the sector, all of which, of course, remains absolutely central to the challenges of good governance in the extractive sector. But I think we now understand the role that the sector plays in national, regional, and global contexts are, are is much greater. The spheres of influence are larger. The stakeholders are far more, are greater, first of all, and are uh, much broader, even in geography. So now we talk about the extractive industries as part of national industrialization plans as a key player in the energy transi transition, as consumers and producers of energy. We look at full value chains from production through end use and understand the shared responsibilities along the value chain for sustainability from cradle to grave, as they say. So I think that this has made the concept of governance much broader and also the expectations and the responsibilities greater for all the stakeholders, for companies, for their governing boards, for governments. We're seeing this reflected, I think, in evolving regulatory environments at the international level and more international fora. So that, that's the trend that I've observed. Greater, broader concepts of governance really embedded in broader global challenges, more eyes on the sector, more engagement, more expectations, and more fora for discussion. Yeah, that's interesting that you, you what you're saying is that wherein the issues used to be localized or at least gave the appearance, now you have a groundswell globally. Uh, and, and, and that as, as we begin to appreciate the footprint and the impact of the industry, we are realizing that while there may be uh, impacts that are distinct to any locality, actually, the governance picture in the big scheme of things is a global issue, which makes me think 
what does that mean then specifically at, at grassroots level? How much has accountability improved, for instance, as a result of uh, ESG? So I think th this ESG field is, again, I mean, it's been around for some time, but really the attention to it is also very recent. So we're really observing, I think, what the impacts have been. So as I mentioned, as you said, I think the stakeholder pressures are now coming from newer and diverse groups along full value chains and from different communities, by the way, like from the finance and the investment community. So to my mind, the growing focus on ESG has helped to illustrate the relevance of, yet we should define ESG, so ESG being environmental, social, and governance factors. I think the growing focus on ESG has helped to illustrate the relevance of these environmental and social and governance factors to these various stakeholders who may not have traditionally been involved. Again, the financial sector, the end users, the regulators. And the focus on ESG, I think, has helped in creating some shared understanding of the ways in which the extractive sector impact on and contribute to social goals and environmental goals. It's helped in setting and raising norms and standards of performance. By the way, I would add to the ESG framework, the SDGs, which I talk about all the time, the Sustainable Development Goals, which has brought about even more of a shared language among the business community, governments, and other international partners. So what I think these ESG and SDG frameworks facilitate is the linking of extractive practices of, and particularly corporate strategies, business plans, but also government policies, government regulations with these ESG or SDG criteria. And that in and of itself, I think helps to facilitate accountability because now actions can be more comparable. They can be comparable against our global goals. The commitments are becoming more public. It's easier to identify and call out when actions are misaligned with those goals or when there's greenwashing, I think we have a long way to go, I should say, Sheila. I think uh, structurally our political systems and our markets don't make this easy. Um, power and voice are really unequally distributed. And so it's not easy for grassroots stakeholders or um, or others who are not at the foot of power to hold corporations or governments accountable. Um, but so we have a ways to go. <laughs> but I will say that I think that we are on the right path and these shared frameworks have been helpful in um, in pushing us along that path. Yeah. I mean, I think the, one of the most important things you said is that uh, the elements of ESG ha have always been around in some form or other, but that the, the pulling of the elements together, the elevating them on the agenda of corporate boards, but also the creating a standard by which uh, ultimately we can measure the extent to which uh, extractives are properly governed, the extent to which companies and governments are held to account. I think that's the key. It's not so much the invention per se, it is more the elevating and then the creating of the standards, which makes me think when one uh, listens to 
public dis discussions on climate change and energy transition. This notion of accounting to the public isn't, at least for me, bubbling uh, to the top. Am I right? And why do you think that we are not uh, immediately embedding this notion of accountability in the energy transition and climate change debate? Yeah, this is really the challenge these days. This is the challenge that occupies a lot of my time. Let me start with maybe a, a slightly more hopeful view um, than what you've suggested, because um, we need a little bit of hope. I I think that there, I think we I think we are hearing more and more forms of accountability in the climate change and energy transition space, even if it's not strict accountability per se. I think that what we're seeing is uh, more and more reporting, more shaming of laggards, more calling out of greenwashing. I think, you know, Greta Thunberg, uh, IPCC, the various NGOs that are publishing reports on commitments and, and greenwashing, and even some regulatory um, actions against greenwashing and so on. That's the start. <laughs> There's, it's a lot of yelling. It's a lot of finger pointing right now. Um, but I don't think it's, there's a vacuum of accountability. I don't think it's um, as dire as you've suggested. And I think, again, it shows that the, um, that, the, that the public concern is there and that's what's needed. But we do have real challenges. And the thing that I would attribute the greatest challenge for accountability in the climate change and energy transition space is that our structures of governance at all levels are not yet robust enough for the types of governance and accountability that we need for the energy transition. We need roadmaps and regulations, and we need coordinated roles and responsibilities. And by the way, this has to happen at the local level and at the national level and at the regional level and at the global level. And those, all of those roadmaps and those that a shared understanding of the roles and responsibilities of different um, actors are necessary to create clear mechanisms for account accountability and for consequences for breaching those responsibilities. So without those structures, which we don't yet have and which are very complicated to develop, I think accountability is uh, hard. <laughs> it's, it's lagging even further behind. Um, but, but I think we're getting there, uh, even if we have a ways to go. Sure. I, I mean, I think you're right. We mustn't throw the baby with the bathwater. But yeah. uh, let me follow through on that, because I, I'm mindful that we have these pledges. Uh, we also have the NDCs, all of which, for all intents and purposes, are voluntary. And so I have to ask, how can we make sure that decisions taken at the cops translate into something for which people can be held to account in a space in which nations are acting voluntarily? Yeah. Yep. No, this is really a challenge. And again, I think this is the main issue here at the COP level is that we don't have a global government. And these are global challenges. And boy, do governments resist the idea of global governance. <laughs> so our, our global governance mechanisms like COP are really designed to limit accountability in my view, they are inherently voluntary for a reason. Um, so the best that we can do is to work with 
the tools and the mechanisms that we have and and to and I and I try to stay grateful for them even if it's exasperating so the fact that there could even be agreement among all the world's governments on you know the Paris agreement and even a framework for making these these voluntary commitments and for reporting on them is <laughs> remarkably impressive in our very fragmented world it's not sufficient for the reasons that you say because we can't because the 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 nationally determined contributions are woefully inadequate and there's not even accountability for states for meeting those inadequate contributions um but it's it's better than absolutely nothing so what can we do we have treaties like the paris agreement and treaty mechanisms like the reporting um, mechanisms we can use peer pressure. We can develop metrics, like you just said, because metrics, exactly as you said, helps us to measure and to assess, have mechanisms for annual reporting as we do. These are all limited means, but they are means for some accountability. Then I would say within, for the public, for, for us, we have an important role in political engagement um, to hold our own governments accountable to their commitments. Um, so I, I, I have not yet found the magic bullet <laughs> uh, for accountability in this vacuum. This is, I think, precisely, the, this is really the consequence of uh, trying to address global problems in a nation-state-led um, world. Um, but, uh, but I think we just need to keep innovating and finding the mechanisms and the tools um, and the peer pressure and the engagement that can uh, that can amount to some form of accountability. Sure, because I think uh, what you are reckoning with is that we are debating uh, globally, but actually governments act nationally, uh, and, and therefore uh, ultimately this gap between the global village and uh, the 192 plus. Uh, sovereign states is the challenge for how you bring it, it it all together. Because when you go home, the the conversations you have can sometimes be at loggerheads with what you you we have uh, agreed to. But I mean, let's use a concrete example. Uh, following the last uh, COP, what happened was that um, some European countries went back, and in going back, decided they would. Uh, recommission coal fire stations. Should that, for instance, as a decision, should that have been uh, a function of a massive consultation process or uh, should we just do just, uh, business as usual? That, that's, that's transition to clean energy call for different approaches. Yeah, no, so this is a, such a critically important point because a, 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 another fundamental basic truth um, and challenge aside from the accountability um, perspective, which is itself critical, is that the energy trans the energy transition itself and energy solutions require regional scale solutions, not just national, but regional solutions. So the EU needs an energy system. Southeast Asia needs an energy system. Sub-Saharan Africa, even, and even within Sub-Saharan Africa, the geographic and economic communities, they need energy systems. The energy transition cannot take place one country at a time. So for that reason alone, again, aside from and in addition to the point on accountability for global impacts, 
But for that reason alone, there should be consultations because there should be a plan that goes beyond the national level. Um, but exactly as you said, when it comes to actual choices, even when we recognize that energy systems are regional, we are still in the system of nation states to a large extent. Well, almost entirely. The you know one exception is the EU, which has a regional structure. But even that regional structure requires unanimity among its states and still gives huge leeway to the individual countries. When it comes to coal, that's just a bad thing. Um, th that's just a, a real problem. Um, there are other contexts in which it's more it, in which the um, the importance of consultation, uh, I guess, is even more um, pronounced in some of these complicated areas. One being nuclear energy, I would say, because nuclear energy is is absolutely a viable and probably a necessary part of a zero carbon energy system. But it has not only national implications, but again, regional externalities as well, especially hazards that are associated with nuclear power. So regional and global consultations not only make sense, but are absolutely necessary. It, it doesn't work for each country to choose uh, to choose its own path. Um, but again, we are we're fighting against structures that are in international institutions that are poorly structured and adapted to the type of regional and global cooperation um, that's that's really needed for these for these challenges. So if, if one looks at the UN, the World Bank, uh, the European Investment Bank, ADB, etc., the, the EU power of influence uh, and finance is very concentrated then uh, globally between, if you wish, the EU and the US. In these circumstances, how does the global public ensure accountability and public scrutiny where you have this imbalance and the ability to move forward requires financing. Are we going to find that uh, we are fractured in the way we go forward because of geopolitical concentration of power? Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, so right now, the US where I'm sitting is showing really poor accountability. Um, the, the US is seems to be more concerned with its declining global power or its global power period than in co-financing public goods, which is critical than in fostering and facilitating this type of uh, this type of international consultation, collaboration, and accountability. Um, this administration is far better than the last one. That's for sure. But even this administration is not very cooperative on uh, these on this global agenda. Um, and by the way, one reason for that I, I should note is that even the U.S. itself is gripped by power. I mean, it is absolutely gripped by powerful interests, especially the fossil fuel lobby that make the transition hard, even in the U.S., never mind to mobilize a type of international cooperation that's needed. So. Right now, the U.S. is not looking like a um, like it's going to take a leading role uh, in the international space. Really, unfortunately, Europe, in principle, could play a better role because it's united around the green agenda. But especially over the past year, because of the disruptions and the distractions from the Ukraine war and the divisions within the EU and its own weaknesses at achieving 
cooperation and consensus, it's also still not strong enough to have internal accountability or to drive the international cooperation that's critical. So it's it's grim. <laughs> um, but again, I'm not, I think I, I um, as we've talked about in the past, keep my eyes on what has to happen, no matter how challenging it is. Um, and we have new global problems that that we've never we've never we've never had global problems like this before um so we don't have the types of institutions that are needed to solve these problems so that's what we need to be doing we need to be diagnosing the problem we need to be reinventing forms of governance to address these new and evolving challenges um and that's really hard because governance requires taking power away from some groups and giving it to others so it's always difficult to reimagine governance um, uh, because um, power is fought over and not reasoned over, um, as you and I have discussed. Um, but that's where we stand on this now. I choose to remain hopeful, and I do see institutions that are taking the steps to um, to fill these gaps or to strengthen the institutions that we have. I think inventions like the SDGs or the IPCC or the UNEP gap analysis or the Paris Agreement or even the voluntary contributions um, or the long-term low emissions development strategies, these are all attempts in my mind to change governance in a way that reflects the actual needs. Um, and uh, so, so I feel hopeful. I also don't think the EU and the US will remain or even need to be the sole powerhouses of power in our global context. And I think power will inevitably shift. Um, and we just need to create the institutions to um, to to foster the type of uh, collaboration irrespective of, of where power sits. Sure. I mean, yeah, it's um, you paint a, a, a difficult picture, which is one of hope and optimism. Uh, but also one that is facing very strong headwinds, in part uh, because you, you've got this tension between uh, the globe and the sovereign. And then within sovereigns, then you have geopolitical blocks, and then you have other, uh, you know, interest groups, which are the corporate. And, and, and it looks to me like in that uh, environment, it's very difficult one to reach consensus but even if you do it's almost so diluted uh isn't it lisa that in the end the consensus is is, is very departed from where you started is that part of the problem do you think oh i do think that's part of the problem but i <laughs> sheila i have to tell you i spend every day um uh, ping-ponging between feeling very grim um, and then feeling hopeful and looking for sources of inspiration. So I, I, I think what you're saying on one hand is exactly right. I think there are pockets of um, innovation and progress that do get diluted and that get drowned out and that get overwhelmed by, um, by war, <laughs> by these by the um by the big interests um by everything other than reason and decency um so on those in that reflection i i feel um very grim and i do feel like that every day but i think at the same time we should recognize that there are also really important and positive innovations happening in all pockets so i take inspiration from 
at, at least in the U.S., what's happening in some city. There's some city level initiatives that are really innovative, and there are quite interesting public-private partnerships that are really innovating and are innovative and are solution oriented and are really trying to find ways to you know what, what how do we decarbonize some of these really hard you know hard to abate sectors and how do we finance this type of solutions and how do we scale this and how do we think about financing at large and so i i i do think it's it's a slog it feels like a fight pushing the boulder up the hill and the boulder rolls back every night but i think that we can also look to these very real um, pockets of inspiration and progress and partnerships and regulatory developments and see that you know even if the even if the boulder rolls back every night i think we're 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 making progress up the hill if slowly <laughs> yeah i mean I, i'm reminded that, that uh you know, we talk about governance and uh, in many parts of the world and, you know, many uh, institutions, the notion of democracy is, is seen as being one that helps uh, keep those in power in check. But I tend to also think it can be a double-edged sword because what it means is that you are moving from holding one government to account uh, it does what it does, and then another comes. They do this, and yep. and 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 so I was wondering. I mean, given that governments come and go, how do we continuously thread this accountability thread from one administration to another? You you made mention of the U.S. Uh, administration, for instance, that the policies are quite different. Where does that leave you and I, where we we think of this yep. the state as a single entity and not uh, fractured between two opposing uh, political views. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, I just want to agree with you, by the way, about the characterization of democracy. And just to say that, to my mind, the form of government, the form of government is not um, decisive of the outcomes. There can be good parts of democracy and there can be real challenges with democracy. And I don't think other forms of government are necessarily anathema to good, decent societies in progress. So I, I I just want to echo that I think we need to be um, careful in, you know, in, in what we're, you know, at least assuming that certain forms of government are going to solve the problems. One of the real problems we have in our form of democracy in the United States is what we alluded to in the absolute capture of government. Our politicians are beholden to the special interests that fund their election campaigns every two years, every four years, every six years. Uh, and that drives our policy. So we have elections, but the policies and the uh, the policymakers are absolutely reflective of and beholden to the special interests. So that's one <laughs> form of democracy I would not suggest we export to the world. It doesn't work very well. Uh, and OK, and then, as you said, there's the other problem, which is that subsequent governments can unravel commitments. We had exactly that problem in, in the U.S. with our last administration that immediately unraveled commitments. Again, I unfortunately don't see any magic bullets because governance and governments are some of the trickiest, uh, trickiest um, <laughs> institutions to understand and to maneuver where what what I do and where I have hope and belief is in public education is in fostering forms of activism, is in fostering an emotional attachment 
for the public and for our leaders and others to understanding these issues and what's at stake. Because with many, with all of the sustainable development goals, but I get we've been speaking especially about climate change, we all stand to lose <laughs> from a lack of cooperation and progress. This is yes, there are there are we will the impacts are not evenly distributed but we all stand to lose and the children and the grandchildren of every person on the planet uh you know their their future is at stake based on how we respond now so i think uh, i i think what we can do is to ensure that the public is informed is engaged has the information understands the importance of these issues and the public includes these policymakers who should have the same again emotional attachment to these issues. Um, and, and again, I see, I see, I have reason for hope there, because public opinion ultimately matters to all governments in all shapes and forms. Um, we just need to encourage and foster and support the type of engagement to make sure that those voices and those informed voices are heard. That's fantastic. I think on that note, uh, a very strong call to action. Uh, we will end today's discussion. As always, uh, Lisa was insightful, and I'm sure that we will speak to each other again. Thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kam Extractive Podcast. Thank you, Sheila, and for all you're doing to keep um, our public informed and engaged. Uh, it's such a pleasure to join you today, and I look forward to the next conversation.